Hello, you're listening to Earth Matters. Earth Matters brings you environment and social justice stories. Today's story was produced in the studios of Radio 2XX, Canberra, on the lands of Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples for Radio 3CR in Melbourne, Wurundjeri country, and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm back, Horry. How would you feel if you were jammed in a metal basketball stadium with 3,000 other people for days? A metal basketball stadium is what was provided as shelter to people on the south coast of New South Wales who sought refuge from fires and smoke during the black summer of 2020. Heat waves have recently killed hundreds in North America and with our own summer approaching, we hope for safety in the coming fire season. Our guest today, Catherine Maxwell, says that hope is not something we wish for, but something we do. Her group is turning community buildings into bushfire and heatwave havens for the vulnerable in her town. The practical dream is to have such a haven in every town. Later in the show, we'll be asking if electric vehicles will make car ownership cheaper. With me here today is Catherine Maxwell, President of the South Coast Health and Sustainability Alliance. I first met Cathy at the repair cafe that this alliance operates from a tiny converted old wooden church, the Red Door, in Maruya. The room was humming with people helping each other repair items from bikes to electrics. It was such a lovely vibe, friendly, calm and well-organised. I was instantly drawn to this group. And as I learned more, I was so impressed by the usefulness and urgency of their projects. Catherine Maxwell, President of the South Coast Health and Sustainability Alliance, what's happening now? Okay, so what's happening now is we have over 20 active volunteers. Our main projects at the moment are we're running the Repair Cafe. It's a weekly uh, commitment by up to 15 repairers. And that's progressing extremely well in terms of two things. One is obviously repairing items and getting them back into use. But the other one is to actually provide a warm, friendly place for people to come. The second thing that we are doing, and we've been running this program for about three years, is we're putting solar onto community facilities. Because just like a lot of households, community organisations are finding it very difficult to pay their electricity bills. We had a period of time when electricity was going up about 7% a year. And a really practical way to help them to reduce those overheads and have more money to do what they're set up to do is to get some solar installed. And we have achieved that through a range of grants, fundraising and through our solar bulk buy. We get a small stipend for each solar install that we refer to our local partners, uh, MESA, Microenergy Systems Australia. And we've done 11 so far. And the next one, which we're very excited about, is we're putting solar and batteries onto the Maria Preschool Kindergarten. The other thing that we started about a year ago is uh, as a consequence of the drought, we knew that we were going to have problems with bushfires. We decided that we needed heatwave and bushfire havens. So we secured funding for our first one, which actually was the Red Door Hall at the Anglican Parish in Maruya. And what we did there was we put in a very large solar system with battery. It's got a switch so that if the power goes down, 
Uh, you can continue to operate important things like the lights, the fridge, a kettle and one air conditioner and the HEPA filters. Now, what a lot of people don't understand or realise is that we had three months of high smoke pollution and what the HEPA filters enable us to do is to keep the air in that facility clean because that facility is used by our most disadvantaged. It's used by the homeless and low-income people who come there to escape from the heat and the smoke. And so by providing uh, really good facilities, we upgraded the kitchen, we've got rainwater tanks, we've got pumps, hoses, all the things that you need to have a secure facility. We know that this facility ensured that some of the more vulnerable in our community were protected and uh, didn't have deleterious health impacts from that event. This is the project that I heard about, when actually in one of those moments when you're in bed thinking before you fall asleep, it suddenly hit me, oh, this is a social justice project. Because number one, it's grassroots initiated. It's providing something that the government isn't really providing for us, somewhere for us to go on a big scale. It's also helping people who can't set up their own home with HEPA filters and stop all the drafts or in rentals and have no ability whatsoever to fix their house really and make it a safe place in fire and smoke emergencies and heat waves. And so this is a social justice project, which is part of your aim in your strategic plan, isn't it? Yes, because we know that what climate change is doing is actually exacerbating current inequalities because when you have a situation of much more extreme weather events, the people who are most vulnerable are the low income, uh, particularly the homeless, because they can't get out of the way of events that are occurring around them, but even people in poor quality housing. We have about 27% of our population in the Yorubadala renting, and we actually have quite a high percentage of social housing. In Maria, we have nearly 8% of our housing is social housing. So we have a number of people who need this sort of facility. What the council provided was they opened up a basketball stadium, but it had no air conditioning. It was at least 10 degrees hotter than outside, no air filters. So anyone who's elderly, has major health issues, major mental health concerns or children, those evacuation centres are totally unsuitable. What exactly was this basketball hall meant to be for? Uh, This was our evacuation centre. During the fires? During the fires. So on the first first day when we were all told to evacuate, there were 3,000 of us jammed into that hall. What? Yes, we... My what? (laughs) How big is it? Oh, it was probably standing room only. You know, if you can imagine a standard basketball stadium with a structure around it. Lucky it was pre-COVID. <laughs> and and the but... thing that was really unfortunate was there was no temperature control. The doors were open, so wood smoke was basically coming in. And to me, probably the, the worst part about it was those clear roof areas, you know, like it's uh, not steel, but it's kind of a plastic roofing. Mm. And if we'd had any major cinders fall onto that, that would have... So, in fact, we felt in the community that facility was actually not suitable for anyone, but particularly not for our most vulnerable. And that's why, for us, it's so important to have really safe places for people to go in these sorts of emergencies. I've got this image in my mind of 3,000 people in a big in basketball hall now. I have to ask you, what was it like? 
being in there. It was awful. I was most fortunate. I live in Maria, so we were not evacuated, but I went down to check it out. Uh, we had a gastric outbreak because they brought in some mobile toilets, but clearly there were issues there. And we even had incidents where the police had to come. So the problem with these facilities was it was overcrowded, it was too hot, and with people highly stressed, it really was a facility that was unsuitable. And because there was no backup generators, when the power went down, we were in the dark as well. So it was totally unsuitable. There was no bedding. Well, it was a fairly similar thing in the Rumour and Bateman Space. So they used sports halls in all three towns. And, of course, for us, we want a heatwave and bushfire haven in every town because in towns like Badala, where they're told, go to Naruma or go to Maria, they got cut off. So they actually couldn't go to an evacuation centre at all. And it was the same for the residents of Potato Point. So there are a number of communities that actually got cut off and couldn't go to a major town. So our goal is to get these heatwave and bushfire havens in all of the towns. So there is at least one facility. In some towns, we'll want more than one. In Maruya, we're turning the Maruya Preschool Kindergarten into our second heatwave and bushfire haven so that the parents and the children can have their own facility. In the bigger towns, we think we'll need quite a few because you've got different groups that are going to have different needs. It's a dream, Mm. is it? Well, it's a really practical way, like... We now know that even with just one degree of global warming, we are having much more frequent heat waves, much bigger bushfires, much bigger storms, you know. And so these havens will be able to be used for all those purposes. And it's just that realisation that, uh, you know, we are going to really need that level of support for people in these events because some of them will go for long periods of time. So you've got to have your pantry full of food. You've got to have cooking facilities, a decent fridge and freezer. Now, all of that on site because people often will not be able to go home and they may not be able to go home for weeks. The situation in Maria was we were surrounded for eight weeks with fires and they'd flare up. They'd all have to rush into town and then the wind would change and it would quieten down and then the next big wind event would occur yeah with that new reality and we know for example that the bigger valley shire council they've actually got a community resilience plan and they are now building a similar sort of facility in small towns where they have quite elderly populations so they've looked at where these vulnerable populations are and they are doing that so there are some councils who are doing fairly similar to what we're doing but in the Eurobadella, uh, Shas has taken that role on and we are just so pleased that there are other community organisations that have facilities that want to upgrade them to this standard. Mm. So very lucky that the Anglican Parish had a facility and now the kindergarten has a facility. Uh, we've got the Tilba Halls. There's two halls there. We're seeking funding to upgrade their facility and we've just started negotiations with the Naruma Preschool Kindergarten. So the hope is that over the next couple of years, these will pop up all over the place. And the thing that a lot of people should also be aware of is these facilities then become much more comfortable to be used by the community outside of extreme events. 
And so for the, you know, the dozens of groups that use the Red Door Hall, they're not cooking in summer, they're not freezing in winter. They've got a lovely kitchen in which to prepare food. And so it becomes a really important day-to-day community resource as well as being there for emergencies. You're with Earth Matters, covering environment and social justice issues, broadcasting across the stolen lands via the Community Radio Network. I'm Beck Horridge. Catherine Maxwell from the South Coast Health and Sustainability Alliance uncovers the social justice issues raised by the rollout of cheap-to-run but expensive-to-buy electric vehicles. She looks at the need to use simpler ways to make rental housing warmer in winter, improving the health of tenants, and how if we made cars and everything else that uses energy electric, we would cut our energy bills. Community groups, including ourselves, have been lobbying the New South Wales government to provide a package of measures to actually encourage people to switch from internal combustion engine to electric vehicles. So it includes things like $175 million to put in a lot more fast charge electric chargers so that people can travel around the countryside and around Sydney and be able to easily uh, recharge their electric vehicle. Did they say they wanted to put a charger in every 100 kilometres? That's right. So outside of the towns, that's what they want. And within uh, Sydney, they want it every five kilometres. All over New South Wales? All over New South Wales. So all the major roads will have EV chargers. What we're hoping for is they'll be in each of the towns because there's nothing better than getting people to come into the town, plug their car into uh, the charger and then go off and have a cuppa and a sandwich while they're waiting for their car to be recharged. You know, when you're travelling, it's a way of getting people to actually stop into a town and uh, enjoy the local scenery while they're waiting for their electricity. I just want to hone you in on this issue. You're such a bundle of information. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, so would you like to talk about class issues and electric vehicles? Oh, yes. I think the way that this can be done in a socially just way, I think has to be done in stages. The first stage is to provide support to what we call the earlier adopters. And these are going to be your middle and upper income people. And you might say, why will you do that? Well, you've got to do that to get a size of market to get the cost down. So the first step is you get that support, you get those early adopters. Then what happens is you then increase the size of the second-hand market. And this is really important. And the other thing that happens is if you can get enough people buying electric vehicles, the manufacturers of electric vehicles will bring in the cheaper models. But even that's not going to be cheap enough for the very low income. So what's going to need to happen, and I think it should happen in about four to five years' time, is the government needs to have what we call a cash for clunkers program. And what that will involve is them actually paying low-income people to hand their old petrol and diesel cars over and then they'll get enough of a financial payment for that that they can then purchase a second-hand electric vehicle. Because if we don't do that, what's going to happen is, you know, there's enormous benefits to going to electric vehicles. 70% less running costs, 40% less maintenance costs. So what's going to happen is the the more well-to-do will get that financial benefit but the lower income will miss out. So I think it's very important that as the market matures and we're getting a reasonable size of the market and reasonable diversity of models and the price comes down, 
that's at the point where the government then needs to intervene again with a new package to get these clunkers off the road because otherwise what's going to happen is those people will be at such a financial disadvantage. And as we know, a lot of low-income people tend to drive very fuel-inefficient cars. So it's a really big financial impost on them to be doing that when all the rest of the community has been able to get in using a technology that's just so much cheaper to run. Mm. When you look at petrol, you have to, first of all, pump it out of the ground in Saudi Arabia. That's where most of our oil comes from. Then it has to go on a ship. It then has to be transported to Singapore. Then it has to be taken off the ship and then it has to be refined. Then it gets back on the ship and then it comes to Australia. Then it has to go on a truck and come to your town. And so there's an enormous cost of bringing the fossil fuel to you. Whereas as we know, we've already got an electricity grid. And if it's just a case of plugging into your PowerPoint at home, so cars can actually just be plugged into a normal PowerPoint. Or you can get a little EV charger at home, or you can go to one of these fast chargers. It's just a, I suppose, the technology is now there, but it's just going to be so much cheaper than, than fossil fuels. So at the end of the day, electric vehicles is something poorer classes of people can look forward to that might even help make the society more equal. That's what we believe. There's a whole campaign to go all electric. And people might go, well, why do you want to go all electric? What they've worked out is that the average family in Australia spends five to $6,000 a year on energy. So that's your petrol and diesel for your car. It's your electricity. It's just all the ways in which you use energy. And the analysis has been that if we could actually go all electric, so your house runs all electric, your car runs electric, you could save between two and a half to $4,000 a year. So the current way in which we supply energy is actually really expensive. And this is the story that the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and others aren't telling you, is that fossil fuels are not cheap. And it's because you've got to use a lot of expensive equipment to get the stuff out of the ground and then to transport it. Whereas electricity, and particularly because we've got this amazing grid that runs from Cape York all the way through to South Australia, it's already all built. So you're actually able to use existing infrastructure. And we're so lucky in this country, we have the best wind and best solar on the planet. And so that's why with uh, government support, and we've seen this in New South Wales and in Queensland and Victoria, there's enormous investment going into renewables because it just is so cheap and particularly at scale. And so, yes, a move to all electric would significantly cut people's energy costs. Um, you're throwing a phrase at me, <laughs> Catherine, the reality of energy poverty. That's right. What's that? Okay, it's to us quite amazing that it doesn't get more airplay because it is a term that's understood very much internationally. What it's about is that when you are low income, particularly if you rent, you tend to end up in housing that is not easy to heat and cool, and particularly heat in winter. And so what happens for these people is they start off with low income, and then what they find is they get these horrendous electricity bills. We've come across people with energy bills that are like, Two to three thousand dollars, they get hit with them, and there's just no capacity for them to pay those bills. And it can quite often be because without door sills on their external doors, they're basically heating the grade outdoors. 
And if their windows have leaks around them, you know, and the windows shake when the wind is blowing, they're basically ending up spending a lot more money on energy to get the house to a reasonable temperature. What's been really quite amazing in this country is that we haven't had a program to retrofit these houses with pretty simple measures, you know, a bit of insulation. I know it's a bit of a word after what happened with Kevin Rudd, but insulation does work. And door seals, weather seals, and, you know, a couple of these what I call low-hanging fruit measures would make an enormous difference to these households. Putting in energy-efficient heating, like reverse cycle air conditioners. If we did that, this would make an enormous financial difference to these households. Not only that, you would significantly improve the health and well-being of these groups because what we know from the World Health Organization, you can't be living in less than 16 degrees. Okay, so if you're sitting around in a room in less than 16 degrees Celsius. So a lot of people who are in social housing and in low-income private rental are often living in much colder conditions. And what happens is these people have to more frequently go to hospital, more frequently be out unable to work because you'll get pneumonia and and other respiratory illnesses. So as a society, we pay an enormous cost for not looking after these people and ensuring that they're living in homes that can be effectively warm in winter and, and cool in summer. For Shasta, we see it as a no-brainer. We have had first-hand experience of this because we do energy audits and we have seen just the enormous emotional stress that these people face when they get their electricity bills. They actually dread them arriving, particularly the one in August and September after winter. I have come across people who go to bed at four in the afternoon because they actually can't afford the heating. And so you've really got to say to yourself, is it really worth us as a society to have a group of people really unnecessarily suffering for a pretty small investment to make these houses more livable? They should all have pelmets. They should all have thermally backed curtains. There are really practical, straightforward ways of making houses more livable. And I just think as a society, uh, we all pay the cost and the price of not doing this. Catherine, I was looking through the South Coast Health and Sustainability Alliance website. There was lots of interesting things in there and reading some things that you'd written, one phrase caught my eye. Hope is not something we wish for, but something that we do. What do you mean by that? Well, I think if you get to a point where you're actually doing something and you're not just pontificating or thinking about it or complaining about a situation, but you're actually doing something, it's because you do have hope that you can have a better world. You know, that you do have hope that what are seen as impossible problems out there actually do have solutions because it's really the hope that drives it. You know, it's that thing about the human spirit. You know, we can and we have solved many things when we've just taken the action and said, yes, this is something we can fix. It really is that hope. You use that hope to motivate you to actually do things. And then by doing things and getting some results, that gives you more hope. So it is a circular thing. You have hope, you get active, you achieve, it increases your hope. And then you, through that motivation, you will then do more. 
And it's that old adage of nothing succeeds like success. And we know for our own organisation, more people are getting involved because they can see the amazing personal benefit that comes from being active and in doing stuff. The personal benefit is that the whole climate challenge can overwhelm you and you can end up curled up in a ball on the floor feeling incredible despair. And when you actually then make the decision to actually do something, to engage with others, the power of the group, and actually challenge and address some of these things, even in a very small way, it's an incredible personal benefit that occurs. You know, your mental well-being is improved, your socialisation improves. You don't have that heaviness of despair of it's all happening around me and there's nothing that I can do. So it really is countering that prevailing, I call it, it's almost like an Australian cultural thing of disempowerment. We have a lot of our media and our leaders that are really saying there's nothing you can do. You know, you're just one person and there's not much you can do. And so groups like Shasta really, we contradict that. And we say, actually, there are things we can do. And we can see that in communities all over the country that are doing amazing stuff. And it really is, you know, I do this as much for my own personal growth and my own personal mental well-being as for all the broader benefits. And so when people say, you know, what motivates? Well, I don't get paid money, but I can tell you I am mentally in great shape. I am well connected in my community. I'm working with a group of like-minded people and we have fun. You know, there's nothing more exciting than seeing people really happy with the results of what we do. Including me, Catherine Maxwell, President of the South Coast Health and Sustainability Alliance. I've so enjoyed your company. Thank you so much for the opportunity. That website address for the South Coast Health and Sustainability Alliance is www.sasha.com.au www.sasha.com.au You have been listening to Earth Matters. This edition was produced for Radio 3CR in Nam, Melbourne, Wurundjeri country and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. If you'd like to get in touch with the Earth Matters team, you can email us at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com or visit our Facebook on Earth Matters 3CR Radio. And to listen to or to share editions of Earth Matters, you can find this and all the Earth Matters podcasts at 3cr.org.au forward slash Earth Matters. Look out for more from the Earth Matters team next week. I'm Beck Horridge. The music today on Earth Matters is by Canberra composer Liam O'Connell and the track is called Cheap.